Well, all right. Thank you for joining us online, crossroadsgrace.org. My name is Jimmy, and I am the pastor of Celebrate Recovery here at Crossroads Grace. And uh, listen, we are coming to the end of our time looking at the life of John the Baptist, okay? What a great series it's been. And we're going to take a real quick look back over what we've discovered from the awesome life of John the Baptist. And remember, uh, if you miss any of these messages, you can check them out online at crossroadsgrace.org. You can listen to them uh, on the Crossroads Grace app, and you can get up to speed that way. You're really going to want to do it. This has been a, a really great series. Because in week one of this series, we looked at how God had a plan for John's life even before he was born. Which means that just like John, God has a plan for our life even before we were born. In week two, we saw that John worshipped Jesus even before he was born. And he leapt inside his mother's womb, just the presence of Jesus coming in the room. And we said that just like John, our entire lives are designed to worship God. And then in week three, Father's Day, we saw how John's ministry centered around this one word that had deep, significant meaning, the word repentance. John was calling on people to not only wake up to God, but to repent, to turn away from their sins. You see, John was a guy that was willing to call anybody out to repent of their sins, including the governor Herod, who had the power to kill him for it. And we said that repentance is not a bad word, it's not a bad thing. Repentance is simply the realization that our life is in need of maintenance. And then last week, this was good, last week, Pastor Brian speaking on location at four different watch parties. Shout out to all of you that are watching from the watch parties right now. He shared with us the part of John's life that I think that we can, we can all relate to somehow, some way. You see, we spoke about how John, when he was imprisoned by King Herod for calling him out, for taking his brother's wife for himself, how John hit a low point where he struggled with his doubt about who Jesus really was. And we saw last week that John wrestled with this, but he stayed faithful in the midst of his doubt. And so that brings us today, the fifth and final part of this series, Greater. Okay, so let's, let's land this puppy. Let's get going. All right, because we're going to talk about something we have all at least contemplated or thought of at one point in our lives or another, and it's usually at funerals when we do this, right? And without overstating it, I think what we're going to talk about here could literally alter the trajectory of your life and the lives of those who come behind you. Today, we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have an opportunity to examine and decide what to do with this part of our life that we're talking about here because we cannot deny it and we cannot ignore it. It's real. It's very real. And it affects many more people than just you. But I want to start by telling you a story <laughs> that is sadly all but true. Okay? Now, many of you know that uh, my wife and I, Tanya, we have five children. Okay, and our oldest, Rebecca, right? This is Rebecca. Look how cute she is. Uh, around the time she was about four and a half or five years old, uh, I was on staff at a very small church. And that church actually met in kind of a storefront 
setting, you know, so we had to uh, tear down and set up each week and everything. So uh, I was a worship pastor uh, full time. And, and so myself and the rest of the team were finishing up with putting away stuff and sound equipment and wrapping cords and everything like that. And, and, and Rebecca was right in there helping, you know, just, just being with her daddy and it was so sweet and she's wrapping cords and stuff like that. And when it looked like we were about done, Rebecca, this precious, sweet, pure little five-year-old girl in her cute, I remember, her cute little pink sneakers, her cute little denim shorts, her cute little red shirt, she proceeds to place her hands on her hips and announce to the whole room, everybody within earshot, she makes this announcement. Well, I'm ready to get the hell out of here. Yeah. We laughed too, right? She didn't say heck. She went the distance and said the actual word out loud. A word that common sense might have told me not to even say it here. She said it out loud, clear as day in front of everybody. Everybody. There was no question on anybody's mind within a 20-foot radius. This is a true story. Within a 20-foot radius... Uh, that, that, that the worship pastor's precious gift from God just said that out loud. Actually, when she said it, the, uh, and immediately there was silence. And then everybody laughed. And then everybody looked at me. <laughs> oh, they looked at Tanya too, right? But it was more of a look of like pity, like, oh, dear sister, we're so sorry you married this guy. We'll pray for you. Stay strong, stay strong, right? In the blink of an eye, everybody assumed that she probably heard it from me, which she did, and she was probably following in my footsteps, so to speak, which I'm not proud of. They didn't assume that she heard it from Dora the Explorer. They didn't assume she heard it from Bob the Tomato on VeggieTales. And at the time, uh, I'm sure Sesame Street wasn't in the habit of using profanity on a regular basis. No, everybody knew in the blink of an eye the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. And in this case, well, I was a tree. But in all seriousness, maybe you've had an embarrassing moment when your little kids expose the inner secretive workings of your home or your marriage in a mere ten-word sentence like Rebecca did. <laughs> but maybe also, though, you've had those proud moments, right? When your children just... Did you proud? They emulated and repeated a beautiful characteristic from your life or your family's life, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe they did it without you even knowing it. Maybe it would look something like this. Let's watch this video. Thirteen-year-old Haley Wenke of Colorado was out riding bikes with her brother and a friend when they saw the wallet on the ground outside a home. The kids stumbled onto a small fortune because it had $700 cash inside. That could have bought them as much ice cream as they wanted on the nice summer day, but they knew they couldn't keep it. Hi, we can't answer the door right now, but the camera is recording. No one was home when the kids tried to return the wallet, but that didn't make them change their minds. The homeowner's doorbell camera captured their good deed. I'm gonna put it over here so no one takes any money. So, 
You're welcome. Thank you. The person who owns the wallet told the local news station he's very thankful the kids found it and returned it. And now he's thinking of a way to reward them for their act of kindness. For InsideEdition.com, I'm Mara Montalbano. Thank you so much, right? Because clearly somewhere along the line, a value system based on the preciousness of others was built into those kids. And this value-based system led them to do the right thing simply because it was the right thing to do. That is a beautiful thing. And sometimes it seems like it's so rare. But that's what we want to think about by looking at the end of John's life, how his life carries on long after he has left this world. He's still inspiring us even to this day. And so what does this mean for us today? It means that we have to look closely at the fact that we are building our legacy every day, whether we know it or not. And I, I'm not just talking to parents with small children. I'm thinking, I'm talking to anyone who is known by anybody else in this world. You see, regardless of whether we try or not to control this, we are known by certain characteristics and traits and tendencies. People think of you with certain words and certain adjectives, the people that are closest to us. And those are also the same people that will influence and inspire along the way by being so close to them. Let me explain. Let me, let me, let me explain it this way. Who is this right here? Mother Teresa. That's right. And what is she known for? She's an amazing woman. When she lived, she was the one who set up soup kitchens, a leper colony, orphanages, and a home for the dying destitute. She treated lepers. She educated the poorest of the poor. She fed the homeless, and she treated them all with compassion. Beautiful life. Now, now who is this? Adolf Hitler. Right. And what is he known for? Among other atrocities, he's most commonly known for the Holocaust, where six million Jewish people died at his hand. These are two legacies that are light years apart from one another, right? But even so, they still have a few things in common. Number one, they are lives that were lived in such a way that they will most likely never be forgotten. And number two, they are lives that inspired others either to do likewise or not to do likewise. You see, what all legacies have in common is the ingredient of inspiration. Either they inspire us to do the same thing or they inspire us to not do the same thing. And how do you want your legacy to be viewed? As something to be followed or something to not be followed? As something people, family, children remember with fondness? As a life worth learning from? These are big, big questions, I know. So let's pick up the story of John's life. When we left John last week, we saw that he was in prison and for calling out King Herod, right? Because King Herod, <coughs> excuse me, King Herod was sleeping uh, with his brother's wife. And even with all the ego of King Herod and all his self-centeredness and all his power, he was still actually not really sure what to do with John. He threw him in prison, but he didn't know what to do after that. Because on one hand, Herod didn't really appreciate John calling him out publicly, right? It made Herod look bad. He didn't like that. 
But on the other hand, he knew down deep inside that John was really a, a man of God. And that he didn't, and Herod didn't feel too good about messing with the guy who had a huge following, including Jesus. Remember last week, Pastor Brian reminded us that John was very well known at this time. He's like a rock star, right? But then there's Herodias, Herod's brother's wife, who he is with, and they are a couple, right? Follow along. She didn't appreciate the bad press that John gave them either, right? And she just wanted him dead. Simple as that. She didn't care who he was. She didn't care who he knew. She didn't care who he's connected to. She wasn't impressed that he was, bapt that he was one that baptized Jesus. She wasn't impressed that he ate locusts and honey. She wasn't impressed with any of that. She didn't like him. And she wouldn't hesitate one bit to kill him if she got, ever got the chance. As a matter of fact, this is what it says in Mark 6, 19 through 20. It says, so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Man, Herod was confused. He was torn Right On one hand, he, he wanted to punish him. On the other hand, he really liked listening to this guy. And that's a couple of fascinating details here. Because here, Herodias was nursing a grudge. She was waiting for the time that she had her chance to take her shot. And she wanted to kill John. But Herod was working a man crush, and he wouldn't let her kill him. That made for some really interesting dinnertime conversation, I am very sure. So Herodias could only dream of the day that she might be able to kill John. And wouldn't you know it. In one of the most twisted scenes of all history, Herodias' daughter was dancing for Herod at his birthday party. And as the night wore on, Herod was feeling no pain, if you catch my drift. Herod was most likely intoxicated. And he was so entranced by this young girl that he was, he was willing to let the liquor do the talking. And when he did that, because of her dancing, he offered to give her anything she wanted because of her dancing. When alcohol does the talking, it never ends well. Mark 6, and 23 says, When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want. Come on, ask me. Ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And then he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you even up to half of my kingdom. Man, that's a lot of alcohol. He's going to give up half his kingdom. All she had to do was say the word and it was hers. But here's what the daughter did in Mark 6, 24 and 25. She went out, the daughter, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And in the blink of an eye, I believe, the mother said, the head of John the Baptist, she answered. So at once the girl hurried into the king with a request. It said, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Ugh. Herodias saw her chance and took it. Finally, finally she could get her shot. And she was willing to use her daughter to make it happen. 
And so, imagine, this put Herod in quite a bit of a conundrum, right? Herod was probably like, uh, what did you say? I thought you would like want a car or something like that. And matter of fact, in verse 26, it says, the king was greatly distressed. That's an understatement. But because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he did not want to refuse her. Man, he had to save face, right? He was caught between the proverbial rock and the proverbial hard place. If he was to say no, then he looks bad. His stepdaughter has a tantrum and his wife ain't happy. But if he says yes, he kills a man that he respects and knows down deep inside was right about what he said. So he chose to do what any intoxicated, prideful, gutless king would do. In verse 27, it says, So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. A man that Jesus said, There was none greater in the entire world. He dies at the hand of a vengeful woman who had nursed a grudge against him, who had it out for him because he called her out on her sin. Now hear me. The power in this scene is not about what unfolded inside the palace. That would be giving that act of hatred too much credit. No, the power of this message of John's final hours is found in a dark, damp prison cell where the man that paved the way for Jesus is drug out, beheaded for doing nothing but telling the truth. He never recanted his faith in Jesus. Even though he knew Jesus could come and save him and, and make it all go away, Jesus didn't, and he never recanted his faith. John realized that there was no one coming, and he was at peace with it. John knew all along, all his life, that speaking the truth could have certain consequences. But that's who he was, a man of truth. And that's what he did, speak the truth. You see, John knew that true life begins when this life on earth Ends. He knew that all along. From the moment that his life ended, his real life began. John's life left a mark on humanity. We're still talking about him. A mark on humanity like few other men. Matter of fact, have you ever heard someone say, man, that's going to leave a mark? You ever heard that? I believe that we can all look at our lives and say, that's going to leave a mark. Maybe not a mark like these kind of marks. Watch this video for a second. <laughs> See, I'm a, I'm, I'm an expert. So I showed that video to my wife, and I was telling her, like, the, the very far reach I'm trying to make with it. And she just looked at me, and she said, what is wrong with you? 
I don't know, but it's just funny, you know, a couple more reasons why I don't run on the treadmill, right? No. But, you know, hopefully in a much different way, your life is going to leave a mark. And it is. Your life is going to leave a mark somehow, some way. You know, in his book called Leading Without Power, author Max Dupree says it this way. Legacy results from the facts of our behavior that remain in the minds of others. That's, that's profound. The mark of a person's life is in the life they led while they're here. So what is the legacy you want to have left in your wake? Now I've got good news for you. I've got good news for you. Maybe, maybe you're the kind of person who is thinking right now, man, I don't even know how to leave a legacy. I, I, I don't even know where to start. I think the legacy I've led so far or left behind so far is, is not so spectacular. Listen, if you're still breathing, you still have time to build the legacy that you want to leave behind. Don't give up. And so can I make a few suggestions on how to build that legacy that you want to leave behind for others? Now, before I say I really feel compelled to say this. This is very important. I don't have it all together. Okay, so I don't stand up here like the all-powerful, all-knowing expert on how you all should build your legacies. Okay, I got, I got, as you can tell, I got enough to worry about uh, building my godly legacy. And the truth is about my life, early on in my life and up through the early years of marriage and the early years of parenting, I was guilty of some unhealthy behavior that started building a legacy for my family that was wrought with insecurity and sadness, and self-centeredness, and anger. And yes, true, my parents didn't leave me a legacy that's worth following. You know, they divorced when I was three years old, and on and on. Uh, my childhood was filled with chaos and drug abuse, alcoholism, divorce, anger, and disconnection. You know, it wasn't a real happy family growing up. And even though my faith in Christ began at the age of 15, and even though after that, godly men poured into my life, I got to tell you, the real changes in who I was and what legacy I'm going to leave behind really didn't happen until I got involved with Celebrate Recovery 13 years ago. Now, 13 years ago, I was also a pastor, and I had also graduated from graduate school with a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. So I had lots of credentials, but nothing going on. And man, when I got into Celebrate Recovery, that all changed. Because through God's help and working the eight principles of Celebrate Recovery and having a sponsor, my sponsor named Todd, invest in me, I've been able to see God reshape my life and ultimately redirect my legacy in a way that now it will matter to those closest to me when I am gone. See, God released me from the power that my parents' legacy had over me for so long. And if he did it for me, I promise you, I promise you, he will do it for you. There's no doubt about it. If you come from a destructive, abusive, and unhealthy home where the legacy isn't something you don't want to follow, let me tell you, it's not a death sentence, but nor is it an excuse either. Either way, you don't have to repeat history. God can and will restore you to life and build in you and through you a legacy that you can be proud of. Matter of fact, Joel chapter 2, verse 25 
it says this, the Lord says, I will give you back what you lost to the swarming locusts, the hopping locusts, the stripping locusts, and the cutting locusts. Now let me tell you, I'm no expert in locusts, so I don't know how many kinds of locusts there are, but I think four makes the point. God will give it back no matter what it was. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, it says this, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. Man, that's good news. Psalm 23, 3 says this, He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness. For his name's sake. So don't think that things can't change for you. Don't think that at all. They can. They change for me. They can change for you. So here are some of my suggestions for you. Number one way to build a, a legacy is walk in integrity. Walk in integrity. Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. There's a before and there's an after. And God wants to do that in your life. But you decide. You decide whether you will be a person who is strong in character, a person of integrity that people can depend on, or if you'll be the kind of person who can't be trusted, whose character leaves much to be desired. That's your choice. If you want to live a godly legacy, be honest in your dealings with others because people are watching. If you have children, they're watching. Be faithful to God. Just faithful, not perfect. You don't have to know the Bible back, backwards and forwards. Just be faithful to God. Your children are watching. Be reliable. Be dependable. Your kids are watching. It's been said that it takes decades to build a reputation, but only a moment to destroy it. Integrity is essential to building a godly legacy. Second thing I would suggest is choose wisely. Choose wisely. You may, you may be saying, choose what? Wisely. Choose everything. Wisely. Choose everything. Life is nothing but choices. Everything boils down to a choice. You choose to get up in the morning and go to work. You choose to come home. You choose to log on online to come to church. You choose to worship God. You choose to read your Bible. You choose not to read your Bible. Everything is a choice. Everything. What you wear. What you think. What you say. Everything is a choice. Choose wisely. Matter of fact, James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom... Now listen. Some people may say, I don't know how to choose wisely. I wasn't brought up religious or in a Christian home. Right? I kind of started this on my own. That's okay. Because if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. He doesn't make fun of you for asking. He doesn't get annoyed with you for asking. He doesn't get ticked off for you asking. He doesn't roll his eyes if you ask. He gives generously. He gives a lot of it without finding fault. So if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. We need wisdom. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You see, we only get one life to live, 
to be the kind of person that we want to become, the kind of person that we want to be known for after we're gone, because we will all leave this earth at some time. In recovery, we say this all the time, choose the next right thing. Just choose the next right thing. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to know everything. Just choose the next right thing. The choices you make determine the legacy you're going to leave. Another suggestion is live accountable. Live accountable. Live with accountability. This helps you stay strong more than anything else because someone's going to be checking on you. Live accountable to God, first of all. Romans 14, 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. You know that's coming. So live with that in mind. How you live before God is important. Very important. We're accountable to God, but also live accountable to others. Hebrews 10, 24 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And I love this verse too. James 5, 16. Get this. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. Now, we confess our sins to God and he forgives us. But we confess our sins to each other and the healing begins. It's, it's something powerful there. When you tell your secrets, when you confess your sins to somebody you, you trust, somebody you can see and talk to, the power of the secret of that sin goes away and you're set free. So pray for each other so you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Another suggestion I would give is invest in others. Give away what you have. Now, I, I know I just spoke to uh, those that are watching who may say, well, I don't have a lengthy godly track record, so my legacy isn't looking so good right now. That's okay. That's okay. Because whatever you have, whatever you have, you can give it away to your kids, to the people that you are, are influential around, the, the people watching you. You can still give it away. You don't have to be a Bible scholar or seminary student or a Christian for 30 years. Right away, you can start living differently. And people are watching. As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. So impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Get the point? Write them on the door frames of your home and on your gates. Be all about it. Be all about the things of God. And again, you can be a believer for one day and be all about the things of God, and it starts making a difference. You start laying out that legacy that you really, really want. Immediately, it can be done. You may not think you have much to share in the way of godly stuff and godly living quite yet, but you would be surprised. You'd be surprised. Give what you have away. Share it. Live it. Be all about it. Listen to this. This is a, this is a very interesting story when I came across it. A husband and a wife who walked by faith um, and consequently left a legacy far beyond anything they could have imagined. They lived early in the 1700s in colonial America. And their names were Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. 
And Jonathan Edwards, he felt God's call to become a minister. And so he and his young bride began, um, uh, started a church, began a pastorate with a small congregation, right? And during the years that followed, he wrote many sermons and he wrote many prayers and he wrote many books. And, and he was very influential in the beginning of the Great Awakening. And together they produced 11 children. 11. I thought 5 was a lot. 11 is a lot. And I think 12 makes it a collection of children. Right? So they, they had 11 kids who grew into adulthood. And Sarah was his partner in ministry. And so he sought her advice regarding sermons and church matters, which I can, I can assure you is a very good idea. I can't tell you how many times that I've had Tanya read an email from me <laughs> before I hit send, and she would say, uh, don't hit send. And so then I'd rewrite it, and everybody lived to tell. So it's a smart thing that, that Jonathan Edwards was doing. And they spent time together talking about these things together. And when their children were old enough... The parents included them in the discussions, right? And that was really important because the effects of the Edwards' lives have been far-reaching. But the most measurable results of their faithfulness to God's call is found through their descendants. Okay, now they were, they were around in the 1700s, okay? Remember that because Elizabeth Dodds records a study done by A.E. Winship, was his name, in 1900 in which he lists a few of the accomplishments of the 1,400 Edwards descendants that came since 1700s. And this is what he found. 100 lawyers and a dean of law school, 80 holders of public office, 66 physicians and a dean of medical school, 65 professors of colleges and universities, 30 judges, 13 college presidents, three mayors of large cities, three governors of states, three United States senators, one controller of the United States Treasury, and one vice president of the United States. Wow. I mean, seriously, Jonathan Edwards' story is a powerful example of living an intentional, godly legacy. My list starts out with one child learning how to cuss at church. A little bit of a difference there. But what kind of legacy will you leave when you die? It's not a question of, of whether or not it will be lasting. Because it's going to be lasting. But will it be imperishable and eternal? Or will you just leave behind stuff? Tangible items. Maybe money. Whatever. Possessions. I think we want to live to live beyond ourselves, right? To live a life of integrity as we pass on our faith. Not perfection, please don't hear that. But integrity. Setting an example for future generations which brings glory to God. John's legacy was not defined by a dim prison cell and his followers dragging his body off to be buried. No. Now his life was defined by thousands of people he paved the way for Jesus to save. His life was an explosion of Jesus' moments. His life was marked by worship before he could formulate words. His life was marked by obedience 
even when it was hard. Man, I want my life to be like that. I really do. His life was marked by persevering through doubt. His life was marked in every way because of a love for Jesus. So what do we want to be? How do we want to be known? And are you living your life to that end? If you've discovered Jesus and this ministry has helped you follow him fully, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give through our Crossroads app or at crossroadsgrace.org give. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Now go and follow him fully.